Have you ever met someone with unshakable faith? I mean like their faith is so strong and stable. It's like they have confidence that it's hard to believe it's even true. And they have that kind of confidence in God when it's easy and when it's really difficult. Have you ever looked at somebody that's gone through a set of circumstances and you just felt a little amazed that they still held on to God in the middle of suffering or pain or loss? And for me, maybe you've ever asked this question is, how would I do if I was in their shoes going through what they're doing with my faith, the suffering and the trials and the challenge? And they have faith when it's obvious that God cares and is there and loves them. And in those days that it may feel like God's far away, but they still just, they hang on to the faith and it's amazing now here's what's interesting for all of us when we see someone like that rarely do we say listen I'm so amazed by what you believe because you know this we all believe a ton of different things and people say they believe things but really what amazes us is this amazing faith we sing that song amazing grace you know we ought to sing a song called talking about amazing faith faith that's active and it's real and it's gritty and it informs our responses and in this series that we're in um, the the faithfulness series we're going to talk about where does that come from how do we get it And maybe if you're here and you feel like you had faith at one time that was pretty strong and it slipped away or you've lost it or you're just not sure why it's so strong, we're going to find out, figure out maybe how it could return to our lives. Because this is what happens for a lot of us. We read things, we experience things, and then we lose our confidence in God. And we're going to talk about how to have that. My name is Matt Brown. I'm the lead pastor here at LifeHouse. And we're jumping into this series around faith and how to grow it, which is probably the reason why a lot of you are here or online. Now, to get to Jesus, who's kind of the hero of our lives, at least he's the hero of this place, there were two things that amazed Jesus. And it's so interesting, only two things when you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first four books of the New Testament. And the, the first one was around a Roman centurion that amazed Jesus. Now, this is really important, especially in the day and age that we're living in, because a Roman centurion impressed Jesus, amazed him, and everybody in Jesus's world hated the Romans. I mean, they hated him because they oppressed him. They were against him. And yet, so this Roman, he comes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, I've got a servant back at home who's sick and it's dying. And I would like for you to heal my servant. And Jesus starts to go into the fact that, you know what? You're a Roman, and even though all my guys think I should never help Roman people, I want to make an explanation about God. And I'm going to go to your house. I'm going to go to your house and heal your servant. And the Roman centurion starts to push back like, Jesus, you don't need to come to my house because I understand something about you. And there's just a little, I mean, just a tiny little bit of similarity between you and me. And this Roman says to Jesus, you don't need to come to my house because I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. What the Roman centurion was saying is I have authority because I represent Rome. And when I walk in a room and I walk down the street, people listen and they obey because I represent the empire, the strongest thing in this world. And they obey me because of that. And what he's saying is essentially, Jesus, I've been watching you and I've been hearing stories about you and you know, and I know that you represent something bigger than just what we see. You represent something bigger than the Roman empire. And I just want you to do what I do. 
Give a command, Jesus, like I do. Because if I tell a servant to go do something, they're on it and they go do it. I just want you to command that my servant be healed right where you are. You didn't even have to come to my house. And remember, this was an awful, sinful Roman man that was starting to believe in who Jesus was. And look at what Matthew tells us, who was there that day. Matthew, who was probably furious about Jesus even talking to a Roman, said when Jesus heard this, he was amazed. I mean, I don't know if I've ever amazed Jesus, but this Roman centurion amazed Jesus. And he didn't amaze him because he asked. He didn't amaze him because he wanted a favor. That happened all the time. This is what Jesus said. He said, truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. And you just got to go back just for a second. This is so good for the world we're living in right now. When it's us against them and we're trying to defeat everybody and we're good and they're bad. Jesus is standing with all these Israelite men and women and he looks at a Roman and I said, I've not found anybody in my crew, the crew that I came from that has faith like you. And Jesus was amazed by this Roman's big, audacious faith in who he was. Because what the Roman centurion recognized that day is that Jesus was something special. And he recognized who Jesus was. And he had confidence in Jesus. And the Roman was just like, I'm all in. I need help for my, my friend. And I'm all in. And you don't even need to show up. Which this is maybe helpful information. That Jesus, Jesus was never, never marveled at anyone's knowledge or obedience. When you read the gospel, it's, Jesus never says, oh, you're so smart. Or you've memorized so many things. Or you know all the songs. You say all the prayers so amazingly that I'm amazed by you. He never said that because no one was ever that smart or ever understood the scriptures that well. And he was never amazed by anybody's obedience because no one could be that obedient. But he was amazed by people's faith. At least this one guy's faith. Now, the other thing that Jesus was amazed by was lack of faith. So there's another story where this word amazed shows up. Jesus goes to his hometown of Nazareth, and he's speaking and teaching in the synagogue. And he starts to do what only Jesus can do. He starts to teach in a way they'd never heard. And there's a little bit of amazement on the crowd's part. Now, remember, these are people that saw Jesus grow up in their hometown. And then he says something that offends them. And then a little bit of jealousy and envy must have riled up in the, in the group that was listening. And Mark tells us, who heard the story from Peter, Mark tells us that they said, isn't this just the carpenter? I mean, we know his daddy, we know he, was just, he's, he, he hammers nails. Isn't this Mary's son and the brothers of James and Joseph, Judas and Simon? And aren't the, his sisters here with us? In other words, Jesus had siblings, Mary had had some other kids, maybe you didn't know that. He's nothing special. We're a little offended and envious and we're just here to declare and these are Israelite people that should have known better, should have seen it coming. He's not a very big deal. And the second time in the Gospels we see amazement in Jesus. And Mark tells us that he, Jesus, was amazed at their lack of faith. So here it is. What amazes Jesus? If you've ever asked the question, it kind of sets the stage for where we're going. Jesus was amazed at great faith and a lack of faith. That's why when Jesus shows up on the planet, his agenda, what he wanted people to follow him and get is that they would be characterized by incredible faith, 
confidence in God, confidence in him. When things were good, and this is the harder part, when things aren't so good, because you know it's easy for us to go, hey, we believe and we're in when things are trucking in the right direction. But when things you know, go negative or they go dark or we have loss, it's, it's harder to have solid faith. But that kind of faith would inform every decision we make, morality-wise, relationship-wise, financially. And it's a little bit confusing because when you think about faith, a lot of things pop in our mind because faith is unlike hope and optimism. And I think we'd all say, listen, we need more hope and optimism um, in our world. But faith is different than hope. And it's different than optimism because faith has an object. This is really important, and I hope I can explain this well. Faith has an object. So, for instance, you get on a plane tomorrow, right? You get on a plane, you sit in the plane, you go to 30,000 feet. I like to fly. Here's the deal with me. I like to fly. I don't know why I can't get a bigger seat without paying a thousand extra dollars. I, I think somebody's after me with it. I get in that. I've talked about this so much. I, I love to fly, but I hate to sit in that seat. And then the little can. And what if I can't get out? And then I go to the bathroom and you don't want to know about that. It's all bad. It's just all bad, right? But when you get on a plane, you, you don't have faith in the fact you hope it works out okay. Or you're a positive thinker that, listen, we're going to get there and the plane's not going to fall out of the air. You know what you have faith in? The object of your faith that the fact that that plane was designed by engineers and has a structural integrity that the, the wings don't snap off and you plummet to your death at 30,000 feet. Are you excited to travel now that I've said that soon, right? Or you have faith in the fact there's a well-trained pilot that's ready to take care of you. That's so interesting. I love to fly, and I'm not afraid to fly, but every time I'm on a plane and we come down and the wheels touch the ground, there's always this moment. And just this is kind of a church thing, but there's always this moment where I'm like, Jesus, I believe in you, and you have my whole life in your hands, and forgive me of all my sins, just to make sure we're all on the same page. I do it every time. I, you know. But again, my faith is not that I'm hoping this works out. That's hope. My faith is in the fact that plane was built well and it's being flown well by the right people. And faith can lead to hope and lead to optimism. But faith is not just hope. There's an object. And the object, this is a big deal. Maybe you've never heard this before. The object of faith isn't a particular outcome. It's not wishing, hey, I have great faith because I'm hoping we get healed. I'm hoping our country turns around. I'm hoping the war stops. I'm hoping my wife loves me. I'm hoping, I'm hoping. That is optimism and hope, and that's fine. But Jesus was not amazed by optimism. He wanted us to anchor what we believed in who we are in something more deeper. He wanted us to anchor ourselves in a person. And it's why Jesus came. The whole reason Jesus came to the planet was to point to something specific. And here's the shocking thing. Jesus established himself as the object of faith. And maybe you've heard that, but you've never really heard it. Maybe you've never heard it. Jesus established himself as the object of his followers' faith. This drove people crazy. This drove the religious leaders crazy. And it was like Jesus would talk about him and God in such similar terms. He wasn't even pointing to God. He was pointing to himself, which was God. And it just drove people crazy. And then Jesus would invite people to trust him and put their faith in him. 
in him alone. Like I am the center of this deal the night that he was arrested. He's sitting around having a Passover meal with his best friends. And he's starting to lay out that things are going to go real bad real soon. He's going to go to the cross and die for the sins of the world. And his followers, they're getting nervous and they're getting shaken because Jesus, if you're dead, we're dead. If we lose this momentum, we've lost our livelihood. There's all these reasons they got disturbed. And Jesus, like in a calm voice, look what he says. He says, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. Now John writes this, and this is another really important little side note. This little phrase, believe in God, means more than just believe. You see, in the Greek language that John is writing in, there's no word for the word trust. Maybe you've heard me talk about this before. And John is trying to figure out how does he communicate this idea around Jesus. It's not just belief, because you believe in a lot of things. A lot of people believe in a lot of things. And they come and go, and they wish they believed in the sun gods and the earth gods. And Jesus said, no. John was like, no, I need something deeper, but there's no word for trust. And so John put these two little words, believe in, which is the same in our language as trust in. It was the first time this was ever written in anywhere in the world. It's really unique. And John says, you believe in God. And Jesus says, you also believe in me. Put your trust in me. Guys, look at me. You're sitting around the table. It's about to get really dark, but your faith is going to be in me from now on. And that will lead you to God. And I'm not just here to die for your sins, but boys, I'm telling you the reason you can trust me because I'm going to go hang on a cross and when you have all your doubts and fears overwhelm you, I'm going to rise from the dead and you'll be forgiven of your sins. And just so you know, that's always the offer from Jesus. But dying on the cross was not the only reason Jesus came to the planet. That was certainly a primary one, but it's not the only one. The other reason Jesus came to the planet is Jesus came to show us what God is like. The true nature of the Father. To correct our assumptions about God. And here's the deal. Whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, you were raised in church or not, we all have assumptions about God. And many of all of our assumptions, including my assumptions, are wrong. And 2,000 years ago, the reason the assumptions were so wrong is, is simply this. God's spirit I mean, it's not tangible. God's not tangible. And people didn't know what God was really like because they tried to piece all these clues together. And Jesus showed up and he said, you want to know what God's like? You want to know what God's like? You want to know what God's like? Just watch me. Which seems so simple. And it still seems too simple, doesn't it? You want to know what God's like? Just listen to my teachings. You want to know what God is like? Follow me. I, this is amazing, I am the object of your faith. If you want real faith, gritty faith, strong faith, faith that endures. And he had to correct some assumptions. We know this because one day Jesus is walking down the road with his guys that were learning from him and watching him. They run into a blind guy. And this may be a story you've heard. They run into a blind guy. And his followers say, hey, Jesus, who sinned? Him or his parents. In other words, if you are blind or you have an infirmity, surely God is punishing you for your sin. This drives me crazy in the church. Years ago, I had a good friend that was dying of cancer. She loved God. She was faithful. I mean, more faithful than maybe anybody I ever knew, but she was dying of cancer. And we prayed and we asked God, and it wasn't working in the way we wanted it to, right? She was, she was dying. And so people approached her and said, the reason you're dying is because you don't have enough faith and you're not praying the right prayers. Now, in my old age, I become a, always, always, always a gentle, kind person. 
most of the time. But when I was a young pastor, I was not always so gentle. And I heard that. I was there that day. And I just, I just came unglued. Like, how, how dare you tell someone they're dying because they didn't say the right prayer? What kind of God do you think we follow? Well, essentially, Jesus is like, no one sinned. God is doing something in this moment. But he's not punishing anybody. And he had to correct some assumptions See, Jesus, Jesus came also to show us what God isn't like. And maybe for you, your faith has dwindled or it's not strong because you have a view of what God's actually not like. And one of the things God doesn't do is he doesn't punish people with disease because they messed up somewhere along the way. In another conversation, Jesus is talking about, you know, loving your neighbor. And of course, all his audience is so interesting because it's just like similar to the modern church today. Because when they said, love your neighbor, they think, oh, well, which of our good Jewish religious neighbors should we love, right? Like you may think if you're a church person, hey, you're going to be there and love your neighbor. And the tendency for us is, well, what good Christians should we love? And Jesus is like, that's not what I'm talking about at all. God does not play favorites and he tells the story of the good Samaritan and the people that were hated as much as the Romans in Jesus' world were the Samaritans it's a long explanation but people just hated this group of people called the Samaritans and he places a Samaritan, the good Samaritan story who helps someone out above all the Israelite good people more than anybody else and he makes a Samaritan the hero see it's a story about racism is what the story about Ultimately to say, God doesn't play favorites. You play favorites, I play favorites, and I'll admit that. But God doesn't play favorites. And then Jesus says this profound thing. He said, you have heard that it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Because that was a bit of a mantra for the Israelite people. Yeah, like God does, because that's what they thought God was like. Like King David, he just kills all his enemies. And Jesus, he leans hard in. He says, I tell you. I tell you, love your enemies. And and I wish I had five minutes just to say that one more time and let us sit and soak in that. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Jesus, I don't even pray for my own kids. And you want me to pray for people that persecute me? Yeah, I want you to pray for both. That you may be children of your Father in heaven because this is what real faith looks like. Wait a minute, Jesus. You're telling me that God loves his enemies? Yeah, I'm gonna prove it when I die on the cross for all you sinful bums on this planet because I love you so much even though really you're my enemy because you're causing me to go to that cross. That's why I'm here. You don't understand what God is like and what God is up to. And then he gives this illustration that if you miss this, you miss a whole lot of who God is. He said, God, he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. And he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous, the good people and the bad people, whatever definition that is. In other words, if you're a good person, you're going to get rain on your crops tomorrow. If you're a bad person, you're going to get rain on your crops tomorrow. And you're going to breathe air and you're going to be able to sustain some life because God is not playing favorites. Why I am here. And this is the image I want you to follow. This is the theory I want you to follow. This is the real life world we're walking into. That everyone is made in the image of God. And if you watch me, you'll understand it. But if you just hang on 
to your assumptions. You're going to miss the whole thing. I want you to love everybody. Kind of like, boys, kind of like that Roman centurion that you didn't want me to help out. That's who God loves. And this is why Jesus messes us up so much. This is why when we stray too far from Jesus in our faith, in our religion, in our church, we stray too far. This is why. This is why when you try and figure out who God is, let me say this whole statement before you judge this or get angry. This is why when you're trying to figure out who God is, you don't start in Genesis. You start in the Gospels. You should read Genesis. In fact, you should read all the scriptures. You should pay attention. If you can do that, that's awesome. But if you want to know who God is, start and finish with Jesus. Because Jesus is not a chapter in the story. He's the whole dang story. Everything about our faith is centered around Jesus. He's the object of our faith. Then the Apostle Paul comes along. And he starts talking about all world religions and then hones in on the Israelite, the Jewish religion that Jesus came from, that the Christian faith you know, was given birth out of. And he's talking about all these religious systems and commands and way of doing things and temple worship and all those what were really good things. And he said about all that, these are a shadow. These are a shadow of things that were to come. All that religious stuff which is good, but it's a reflection of something bigger. And it's not that the shadow's wrong, it's not wrong at all, but it's not the whole story. It's not the complete picture. There's big parts missing, and that's why people would get so far away from who God really was. He says it's a shadow, all of it. Anything religious is a shadow, but when the shadow caster comes, woo, when the thing that casts the shadow shows up, there is clarity. That's why for some of us, we grew up in churches that were so goofy and so weird and had so many weird rules and did goofy, stupid things because we were all about the shadow, but not the person that casted the shadow, which was Jesus. And it was incomplete. And we guess and we make crap up and we push people away from a God that wants to redeem all things. Look what he says. These are all that. It's a shadow of things that were to come. The reality the clear picture of God, however, is found in Christ. In other words, if you're guessing who God is, you don't have to guess anymore. All the other things were hints, they were clues, they were leading to something. Jesus is the fullness of God. And in a Jewish world, for some people, it was such relief because it was like, oh, thank goodness, this is what God's really like. But other people, maybe this is you. And if this is you, you have a choice where you can bail and leave and not come back. You can be angry at me or you can lean in to the shadow caster and let go of all the preconceived ideas you have about God and attach yourself to Jesus first and let everything out of that flow. Isn't that amazing? And out of that, Jesus wants a relationship with you. He wants to, you to know the truth and let, you set, let it set you free. So John, who was raised on the shadow, he was a Jewish man, all the stuff, all the good stuff, all the commands, all the traditions, all the temple worship. John, who was one of Jesus' closest friends, when he was raised on it, and then he spent three years with Jesus. This is so remarkable. This is what makes me fall in love with Jesus all over again. He spent three years with Jesus, and then he took care of Jesus' mama when she was old, which means he heard the stories of Jesus you know, as she you know, moved into another world. And as an old man, John is sitting around who writes the gospel of John. And he's like, how, how do I describe the one 
that came to show us God and be God in our world. And he must have thought for a long time, inspired by God's spirit. This is what he wrote in light of being with Jesus for three years. He said, the word became flesh. God, all that spirit, all those things we were trying to figure out, he became flesh, like tangible. We saw it, we heard it, we were with him. And he made his dwelling, he was with us, among us, and we have seen his glory and the glory of the one and the only son who came from the Father full of grace. Like, I'm gonna give you what you don't deserve and truth, which you gotta know the truth because it sets you free. And we knew him, we were around him, And he said, follow me. And if you're in a place where you've read stuff, discussed stuff, thought through stuff, and taught stuff, and it doesn't lead to the word becoming flesh in your life, be real in your life, Jesus would say, John would say, you're invited to something better, but you may have to unlearn some stuff. You may have to let go of some shadow stuff to grab onto the shadow caster because Jesus was the perfect representation of the Father. And people were so confused about God and Jesus brought clarity around it. And here's the deal. When you read the scriptures and when you read the gospel, we have a tendency to look past Jesus to all the rules, the commands, the stuff, and we miss Jesus. But all points to Jesus and your heavenly father. This is the road to God is through Jesus and nothing else. So in light of all this, Jesus keeps emphasizing relationship with him a relationship with him and here's my question for you as we process this together what is the concurrency of any relationship think about this with a friend a parent a child it's not obedience is it I mean you can make your kids obey that will not give you a great relationship with your kids and there's time to make your kids obey that's a whole another message for a whole another time But obedience isn't the currency for a relationship. Fear does not cause great relationships. You know that. Not bartering like I will if you will, God. If you do, I will, God. We do that all the time. If it's not those things, what's the essence of any relationship? And you know this. It's simply trust. It's simply trust. And Jesus wanted to be the object of our faith is to trust him. That we'd have confidence in the good days and the bad days in our faith because we trusted God. And if you go all the way back to the Garden of Eden when man and God broke relationship, man and woman and God broke relationship, it was simply because man and woman didn't trust God. They didn't trust that he had their best in mind and trust was broken. That's why Jesus shows up on the planet and he invites us back into a trust relationship with him because God revealed himself through Jesus. Not a shadow, not another list of rules. And if trust isn't the currency, Jesus invited people. He invited people. Next slide. Just to trust him. Like we would position our lives around the fact that Jesus is who he says and what he said and follow him. You're the object of my faith, Jesus, and I trust you. Faith that's gritty and it's strong and it's raw and it's connecting me to a God that I know he holds me in his hands. And Jesus would say, if you want to know God, you got to watch me. You got to listen to me. You got to follow me. I'm not playing favorites. I care for you all, but I'm inviting you individually into a relationship. And here's maybe something you've never heard before. Maybe you have, but maybe you've never heard this before. God 
is most honored by our living, active, death-defying, in spite of trust in him. I trust you, God, and you don't get here automatically. And if you're not here today, I get it. That's why we're trying to figure this out. But this is where this can lead. I trust you, God, in the fact that in light of I can't see what you're doing. And I'm scared and I'm hurt, but I'm trusting you in this. Think about this. This is what you want for your marriage, right? As a dad, you want to be so trusted by your kids and have such a reputation of trust with your kids that for some reason you don't show up in the moment you're supposed to show up. This is what you want your kids to say. I don't know where dad is, but he's coming. Well, how do you know he's coming? Because I trust him. And he's never broken trust with me before. You got a son, he's not where he's supposed to be or doing the exact thing he's supposed to be in the moment. And you say, no, no, my boy... He's going to come through. Well, how do you know that? Because the history of my relationship has been trust, trust, trust. Not bartering, not fear, not you do if I do. It's trust because I know that you are who you said you are. Trust is the currency that Jesus displayed for us. And this is what Christian maturity is. You want to know what a mature Christian is? It is not the smartest person, the most educated person, not the most well-read person. It's the person that asks this question and can answer it honestly. What would I do if I was confident God was with me? Mature Christians are able to ask that question and hang on to it. What would I do? I would do what God's asked me to do because I just believe he is. And that's a great question for you to ask, even if you don't feel like you have any faith, you don't believe or you have like small faith, what would I do? What would I do if I was confident? Like I knew in my bones God was with me. I'm going to make a hard relationship decision. I'm going to make some hard dating decisions, financial decisions, moral decisions. And it's going to hurt and it's going to feel like I'm losing something. But I'm confident God's with me. So I'm going to do it anyway in the good and the bad. And this is where you've seen people step up and step out in their faith and do amazing things. And when you see someone do that, when you see... That kind of faith, most of the time, we want that kind of faith because this kind of faith brings peace in the middle of incredible storms and times that are upside down in our lives. This is how you get peace. This is how you have joy when it's hard to find joy. This is how you watch people have those things in their lives when it's all crazy. Now, here's why this is a big deal. This is where I'm leading to. Over the next five weeks, we're going to talk about five things that we believe help grow our faith in trusting Jesus. And there are things that we can control, some of them, and a few more things that we can't control. But when they happen in our lives, they cause this weird faith. They cause this weird kind of faith. They cause an enduring faith. And what I want for you and I want for me is an enduring faith of your own. Not just like little kid faith, although little kid faith is really good. Not just high school faith that I went to camp, you know, I sang a song and I raised my hand at the end if you've ever done that. Not just that kind of faith, although that's really important. Faith that lasts, faith that's strong. And these five things have been observations. And we're going to talk about number one next week. That when this is a part of our life, it does something. And we've asked the question, what facilitates, what fuels or facilitates the development of enduring faith? Adult, strong, I'm in it to the end kind of faith. Another way we've asked this, are what are the essential ingredients that when stirred together result in enduring confidence in God? 
Here, here's what I would tell you. I've been doing this for a long time. I've been a pastor for almost 30 years. I've been your pastor of this church for 15 years. And what I want for you to have, and this is if you're just watching online and not just watching online, just if you're watching online, you've never showed up in the building or you're here every Sunday or your first time. What I want you to have is faith that endures, something you can hold on to when things are falling apart. And these five faith catalysts happen in every season of our lives. And this is important because active faith and active faith looks different in every season. It really does. Think about this. Your faith as a teenager probably looks different than it looks now because as a teenager, you were walking through the teen years. Maybe your parents got a divorce and you had to kind of navigate faith. God, where are you in the middle of this? Your faith as a college student you went off to college and maybe you had professors that you know, told you God didn't exist and then you had to get your own intellectual mind going and you had to kind of navigate faith through that. Young married faith, oh my gosh, your first year of marriage, you need all kinds of faith and put all the knives and forks away so you don't stab each other right in that first year of marriage. Well, your faith is different in early married years. You have kids, whoo, you start praying different when you have kids and that causes your faith to take a different turn. But it does something. And for some of you, it would say, listen, it's not having kids. It's the fact that we couldn't have kids. And not having kids has shaken my faith and shaken my faith in a way that I did not expect. And it's hit me so hard. You lose a child. You lose a parent. You lose a marriage. And your faith, it, it takes on a different feel and look. But we still have to figure out how can we have that strong faith in those seasons of life. And maybe you haven't thought about this, but you're in a season right now. I don't know what it is, but you're in a season. And this is why we're doing this series. And for some of you, you would say the season I'm in with my faith is I've about lost it. Or it's really, really weak. And we want to try and figure out why. And how maybe we can reclaim it. Now just a side note on that. Here's what's so interesting after being, doing what I've done for so long. I don't know if I've ever, ever heard a story of someone saying I gave up on God or I gave up on faith or I quit believing and it's centered around following Jesus. Usually people step away from faith and what they believe because all these other peripheral things. I have never heard someone say, and maybe you have, but I just tell you, I never heard someone say, listen, I just, I've, I'm, I'm quitting on Jesus because I don't like Jesus. I've just never heard that. In this series, we want to figure out how to handle that. And maybe the other motivation for me, and I hope it's a motivation for you, is the fact that spiritual maturity is not measured in terms of what a person knows. And I hope you know a lot and you study the scriptures a lot. I really do. It's really important. But your maturity is not based on what you know. And it's not measured in terms of experiences. This is something we mess up in the church a lot. I love singing the songs. And I love hitting my chest and getting real emotional about Jesus. I love that kind of stuff. I'm an emotional person. But my spiritual maturity is not based on how high I can raise my hands, jump up or down, clap, or say hallelujah 50,000 times. That's not the gauge of spiritual maturity. It's just not. But in the church, somehow we've made it about that. Spiritual maturity is gauged by how we respond to circumstances and how we treat other people almost 100% of the time, maybe 100% of the time. Because big faith is I'm responding, God, as if you're still in charge. 
And God, I'm going to love in spite of the fact it's really hard to love right now. That, my friends, is spiritual maturity. And if someone convinces you it's something other than that, they're wrong. According to Jesus. It's trusting anyway and loving anyway. And this is where big faith comes from. This is this is big faith. Just to get it out in front of you. And if somehow you tuned out or you're thinking about golf or lunch, just give me give me one more second. Come back just one for just one more second. This is really important. See, spiritual maturity are people who trust God in spite of Spiritual maturity is people who love people in spite of. And they're the deepest people you know. In spite of people, I trust and I love. Is what spiritual maturity looks like. And you can't explain this. You see this happen in somebody else's life. It's just like, how are they like that? And I don't even know, but I think I'd like to be like that. Because... Their world's upside down and they're laying their head at night and they still sleep and they still have joy and they still have peace and they love me when no one else loves me. This is as deep as it goes according to Jesus. It's spiritual maturity. And this is why this is a big deal for our church. I think for the church, but for our church specifically. Because when you know, you know like no. Like I can quote you the whole book of Acts. I can tell you about Ephesians and I got great. When you know, but you don't do, you're just proud. And you know some Christians like that. And if you're like that, stop being like that. When you know, but you don't do, you just get prideful. And when you do, like I do all the right things, I'm doing for people, I'm doing, 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 but you don't do it with love, you just get judgmental. And you don't want to be proud, and you don't want to be judgmental, and you know you don't want the church to be that way. So over the next five weeks, we're going to talk about ways that we can do this well and have faith that's gritty and strong, and it will not be easy. But if you decide to come back, in fact, I hope you come back for every message or watch everyone online, at the end of it, you might experience real faith, mature faith, faith that can last through the good times and the bad. And this is a big deal. For those of you that feel like maybe your faith is slipping away through your hands, you might rediscover what God is really like. So come back next week for the first of the five faith catalysts. Let me pray for you, then I'm going to get you out of here. Heavenly Father, I am so grateful that we get to read and understand who Jesus was, the object of our faith. I pray for the rest of our lives, for those of us that follow you, Jesus, we would hold on to that first and foremost. And for the people that are online, in the room, watching, listening, that just aren't sure, they're not sure they believe, they're not sure they want to be part, that they would not get confused by anything else but you, Jesus. And then hopefully us representing you well. Help our faith to grow, to be strong, to be gritty, to be raw, and have confidence in a God that absolutely without question, loves us. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.